Hey, how many of you enjoyed a high school biology class? Anybody? Anybody enjoy biology? It was fun, right? Um, one of the most anticipated days, if you'll remember, um, high school biology, biology was, of course, dissection day. Who remembers dissection day? Yeah, that was exciting, wasn't it? That was on the calendar for, for the year. And so how many of you um, had a night crawler? a big fishing worm for your dissection day. Okay, I can see three or four hands. A night crawler, a few, a few head nods. All right, um, I think our high schools, those of us who raised your hand, must, they must have been broke, right? It's like, yeah, here's your night crawler. Just picked this up at the bait shop this morning. Saved their department a lot of money. Everyone else in the county had fetal pigs, but you, you get a night crawler. Okay, how many of you, speaking of, had pigs? Pigs, okay, couple here. How many of you um, would say um, the, the classic frog was what I had? Okay, that's the majority. All right, um, in, in a moment, I'll have you shout out other unique animals. But before I do that, um, know that we have placed a sickness bag in the seat back in front of you. Okay, now, now how many of you looked, actually looked? That was a joke. Okay, so who would shout out something if I haven't said it? What did you dissect in biology class? Wait a minute. A cow's eye. Oh, that would have been cool. Shark. Oh, my goodness. Where did you grow up? Oh, that's awesome. How cool would that be? Somebody else? A cat? What? I bet you discovered that thing had no heart, no soul, and was chock full of evil all the way up to a snack when you got inside of that thing. Okay, rats. All right, rats. My heart just sank a little bit because we, we have some domestic rats that our kids enjoy playing with. Oh, that's tough. Somebody's thinking, Pastor, where are you going with this? Here's where I'm going. Romans 4 is really a dissection of faith. That's what it is. Paul breaks it down for us today. He's going he's gonna, to talk about it in, in more depth. He'll talk about how crucial faith is for salvation. So um, I'll tell you that in chapter 1, verse 16, we read the gospel is the power of God to everyone that what? Everyone that believes, right? Um, chapter 3, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And if you believe in something you haven't seen, that requires what? It requires faith. That's right. So what is faith exactly? Um, different kinds of Christians will give you different uh, answers. If you were to ask a Roman Catholic or the late Billy Graham or the United Methodist pastor whose company I enjoyed yesterday at a wrestling match, what does Paul mean when he says the righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe? You may get three different answers entirely from those three folks. Thankfully, Paul tells us exactly what he means by faith in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 is Paul's analysis of what the faith that saves really is. It's as if he lays it out on the table and dissects it 
for us. So some of you uh, may have for years doubted your salvation. Maybe you've known that you were saved by faith or so it was said, but you're still not really sure what that means. Is it praying a prayer? If so, how did I know that I prayed the right prayer? And, and maybe it's feelings of repentance, sorrow for sin. Uh, how strong did, the, did, did my sorrow need to be? And how much change needed to happen in my life for me to be saved? And how much commitment to Jesus really is enough? And, and maybe you've prayed the sinner's prayer over and over and over and over again. Maybe if the salvation prayer was a Guinness world record, maybe you would own it. You keep saying the prayer because you feel or you fear that you haven't prayed it enough or eloquently enough. And so maybe you make our church records look good. I know some of our kids make our church records look good because they raise their hand every time they're asked the question, do you want to follow Jesus, right? And so maybe you've been even baptized twice, okay? Three times. I don't know. Paul's going to answer your questions today. He's going to alleviate your insecurity today, and he does so by looking at the life of Abraham. His choice is very intentional. Jews considered Abraham to be the father of their faith. You've sang the song, help me. Father Abraham had many sons. Boom, boom, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. Come on, sing it. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father Abraham, right? And then you go left arm, you go right foot, left foot, you turn around, you shake your head, you do all. It is like the hokey pokey worship. It's what it's like. You're right. So Father Abraham. Paul is going to demonstrate Abraham was justified by faith and say that if he, the father of, of our faith, was saved by faith, we ought to be, we, we, we need to be saved by faith too. And, and by the way, a question that a lot of Christians have is, how did Old Testament uh, believers get into heaven prior to Jesus? Um, people are like, I don't see any altar calls in the Old Testament. I don't see 3,000 added to their number that day like we do in the book of Acts. And if you're new to church, the word saved simply means, it's Christianese, it, it, it uh, simply means knowing for sure you'll go to heaven. That's what saved means. You're saved from, from, uh, from hell, really. And so if you grew up in a southern church, like I did, the word saved had three syllables saved. That's what you got when you were preached to, okay? So you need to be saved. So I trust Romans 4 will be clarifying uh, today for us. Paul frames this whole chapter around three questions. How was Abraham saved? When was Abraham saved? And what were the elements of Abraham's saving faith? So let's dig in. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, by what he did, by following the rules, by some list, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? 
And then the following quote is from Genesis 15, 6. Paul quotes the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So first question, how was Abraham saved? Genesis 15, 6, Paul read it. It tells us that he was saved by faith. So Abraham believed God's promise that God would bring salvation to the world through one of Abraham's sons. And because Abraham believed it, it was credited to him, Paul writes, as righteousness. Now verses 4 through 5 show us the inner logic of, of faith. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, or due. This is the premise behind every job that's ever been. If you work, you get what? You get wages, you get paid. You perform a certain job, you get paid for it. When the boss pays you, he's therefore not gifting you anything. Unless it's a bonus or something like that. It's something you have earned. We don't say when, when we get a pay stub in our email account or if it's direct deposit or, or we get a literal check in the mail, we, oh, we don't get on the phone. Boss, thank you so much. It was so generous of you to pay me this week. How thoughtful. Because your wage is what you're owed for working. That's what Paul's saying. And this is how... He's saying, many of us approach God. I do good things, I work, and God pays me with heaven. Most religion, I've told you, works off of this premise. I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. God gives me acceptance as a reward for my obedience. And the problem with that, as we've said, is that good works done to earn salvation are not done out of a love for God. If your motive is heaven and not simply loving Jesus, who are you doing your good works for? Yourself. If I mow a widow's lawn so I will go to heaven, I'm not actually thinking about the widow in my act of service, am I? I'm thinking about me. And so it's like if, if you're at one of those coffee shops with the tip jar, maybe it's a drive-thru, and it says, tips welcome. Thanks a latte. You know, most of them say something like that. And, and so you, 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 you didn't, you didn't want to tip them. It wasn't something in the forefront of your mind, um, but you, you want to be seen tipping them. Okay, you feel this obligation all of a sudden. All they're doing is bringing you a cup of coffee. It's not that big of a deal. Like, isn't there a way, do I need to tip them? I mean, this is a small task, for honest. Then, what if you thought that they were turning around because you, you want to time your, your placement of that dollar bill for, for, for when they see you. You thought they were turning around and you went and you dropped it, but actually they weren't quite turning around. They were just turning to a different part of, of the kitchen. Uh, and, 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 and that's not good because now you've got to get it back out so you can put it back in when they turn around, right? Because you want to be seen. 
But what do you, I mean, how do you, what if you're seen pulling it out of there? Oh, now you're in a big dilemma. How do you get it out and put it back in without being seen, taking it out, but being seen, putting it back in? See, we play these games with our works because our motives aren't right. We don't always want to honor God. We want to be seen honoring God. If you get asked the question, why do you think God will let you into heaven by a stranger? Why do you think God will let you into heaven? Or let's say by God himself. And you say, because I've always believed in you, gone to church, been a great person, even tithe my money. You're working off the premise in verse 4. I work, therefore I'll be accepted. There are multiple problems with that. We learn in chapter 1, good works don't even change the heart. Good works don't even make us any better on the inside. We learn in chapter 3 that being good in one area of your life doesn't erase the fact that you've broken God's laws in a number of other areas in your life. If you were on trial for assault and battery, you can't say, yeah, judge, but I elect not to take plastic straws from my waitress when I eat out. And I drive a Prius. And I recycle. And I I even compost. He's going to say, all good news, but irrelevant. Irrelevant to the charge of assault and battery. So, Romans 4, 5 will continue, or I should say Paul continues. And to the one who does not work, but what? Believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. What does that phrase mean, does not work? Does not work. Of course it cannot mean that Christians don't do good works because a Christian's life is supposed to be chock full of good works, not to earn salvation, of course, but out of gratitude for our salvation, we do things. Here Paul means, when he says does not work, he means that you stop working as a means for salvation. You should never serve God to get into heaven. So quit trying to be good and expecting something in reward for your, for your goodness. Rather, believe in him who has the power to make unrighteous people righteous. Amen? That's what Paul's saying. In other words, believe that God accomplished what God said he'd accomplish when he sent Jesus to die on the cross in your place. That in that moment, your complete and total forgiveness was bought with the spilled blood of Jesus. Believe that. That is truth. Hang your hat on it. Paul says, when you believe that, when you really accept that as your own, his righteousness is credited to you. In other words, you are what? Saved. When you truly believe that Jesus accomplished it on the cross. Nothing to do with what you do. And of course, when we're saved, we do things out of a love for God. Paul effectively says, this salvation is pictured in the Jewish father Abraham who brings, think about this, this is such an amazing picture. 
who brings, I don't want you to think of his son Isaac, but just a lamb. He sacrificed many lambs. Just a lamb who brings a lamb to sacrifice and lays his, his hand on the head of the lamb as it is being sacrificed. The lamb, Paul is saying, is symbolically credited okay, with sin. With sin, the lamb takes on the sin. And you, Abraham, therefore you, are symbolically credited with the lamb's innocence. That's the swap. What a beautiful exchange. In the same way, uh, when you believe that Jesus did what he said he'd do on the cross and claim it for yourself, credit for his life and death gets put into your account. Uh, the word credited that we read here is actually the Greek word uh, logizomai. Logizomai. Please don't think me educated. I had to Google how to pronounce that. Okay, It's a banking term. What it means is that something is put into your account. Okay, My son Miles has a piggy bank at home with $30 in it. It is a treasure of our family. We have four of them that we bought from Dwayne Pup, who makes these post office piggy banks. He has $30 in his piggy bank. If I were to find out I were going to die and went to the bank and said, I want you to, let's say Miles was my only child, just for the sake of this example, I want you to put my entire savings account into that piggy bank. Do you understand? If I were to call... Uh, if I were to call Thrivent and say, I want you to put all of Shannon's retirement that she's earned into that piggy bank. Um, my home equity, I want you to put into that, upon my death, into Miles' piggy bank. My lifelong savings into that piggy bank. And Miles' bank account in that moment would go from $30 to like $55, Right? But you get the point. Note that faith here is not just believing in general. It's believe God for something very, very specific. That in the death of his son Jesus, your sins are literally removed from you and you're credited with his innocence. So we lean into that. We trust that. We find assurance in that. We're filled with peace because of that. And we no longer depend on what we've done because we understand what he's done. Okay? If you died tonight, again, and God asked you, why should I let you into heaven? You ought not launch into everything you've done. God will say, do you not understand the gospel? The correct answer to the question is because of what Jesus has done. Someone asked uh, Billy Graham right before he died, why do you think God will let you into heaven? It was his last interview. And he said, I won't be in heaven because I've preached to large crowds. I will not be in heaven because I've tried to live a good life. I'll be in heaven for one reason. Many years ago, I put my faith and trust in Jesus who died on the cross to make our forgiveness possible and rose again from the dead to give us eternal life. 
verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Then Paul uh, turns to David and he quotes David to kind of support his own argument. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Why does Paul used the example of David. Two reasons. David would have been right behind Abraham in terms of a well-known figure from the Old Testament that people would recognize. So it was like low-hanging fruit, for an example. Everybody would know who David was. Second, David was like the pinnacle of forgiven sinners in the Old Testament because his sin was so great. Do you remember what David did? Do you remember his scandal? Just think what it would be like if you were uh, in the Old Testament in David's story, Uriah's mother. Uriah's mother. You have a strapping son who's a military leader in Uriah. You have a beautiful, wonderful daughter-in-law that you adore in Bathsheba. And she is minding her own business, bathing on the roof in what she thinks is her own privacy. But the king, David, who has a much higher place in the city, in elevation, looks down, sees her bathing, lusts after her, wants what is not his to have, and pursues your, imagine it's you, your daughter-in-law. Not only that, he places your military son in the front lines of the battle so that he dies so that she would no longer come with complications. David was a sinner. How scandalous is that? David understood the only way he could be forgiven is if someone else was charged logizomai with his sin because he deserved death. And so just like David, Jesus is charged with our sins, okay? He will pay our price. So how was Abraham saved? That's our first question. He was saved by trusting that God would save the world, starting with himself. Number two, these are shorter. When was Abraham saved? When? When was he saved? Verses 10 and 11. How then was it counted to Abraham? Was it before or after? He had been circumcised. It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So here's Paul's logic. God declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, 6. Circumcision didn't happen until Genesis 17. So Paul is saying before any laws were given, Abraham had been declared righteous. 
Therefore, you can't say that by obeying some religious law, that'll make you a Christian. Abraham believed before he was circumcised. More to our context, you're saved prior to your baptism, not during or after. Your sins are washed away before the baptism. Uh, the, the, the baptism, Christ is, is credited with your sin before the baptism. The baptism is simply a sign to everybody else that you're forgiven, that you're saved, that you love Jesus, that he's already taken residence in your heart. So how was Abraham saved by faith? When was Abraham saved? Before the law, before he followed the rules, before God asked anything of him, before his list of good works. And then third, what are the elements or the circumstances around Abraham's saving faith? This is where Paul really dissects it. I'll take a minute and, and make sure you know just real quick the story of Abraham. The wickedness the wickedness of the world had by this point come to a head. And they thought they could build a gigantic tower to make a name for themselves. What was it called? Tower of Babel. And Christians believe that it was at the Tower of Babel that God got so angry with their egos and pride that he divided their languages. And that is the moment in human history that we went from one language to multiple languages okay and and so the in an, in an act of god he 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 tore down the the tower because they were positing themselves as independent of him he got mad it was it was the titanic of its day really um, remember they said of the titanic not even god himself can sink this ship it was a brazen act of independence and pride from god and of course you know it it sank. So as punishment of building the tower, God scattered the nations in, in, in their languages. Um, so God chose a man named Abraham to father the nation uh, through which would come Jesus Christ. The problem that he has, if you'll remember, is this. His wife, they're in their 70s. She's barren. She has yet to have a child. For 20 more years after God promises she'll get pregnant and have a child, they still have no kids. 20 years. We often overlook that part. So here they sit at 90 years of age, hoping against hope. Abraham didn't just believe in God in general. He adjusted his whole life around it for 20 years. He's prepping the baby room. For 20 years, he's building a crib. For 20 years, he's, he's building his own changing table, and, and he's walking in expectation. He's Googling baby boy names, and he's looking for more land for his expanding family, and he's putting more food on the table, and he is a fully convinced, childless, near 100-year-old, making hay concerning the promises of God. This is going to happen because God said it would. I'll read to you the rest of the chapter, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on, not works, but 
faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, who gives life to the dead. Isn't that an interesting choice of words when he's 90? Gives life to the dead, calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope. Man, I love that phrase. What do you need to believe against hope? What do you need to hope in against hope today? Who believed against hope. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave God glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he'd promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because it was actual faith. But for ours, or rather verse 23, almost done. The words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Salvation will be credited to us who believe, who have faith. Here's the connection Paul wants us to see in conclusion. Just like Abraham believed, God would send a son that would bring salvation into the world as he promised. We are to believe that Jesus was that son. Ultimately. So when we believe in the resurrection, we're saying, I believe it worked. I believe it worked. I believe Jesus' death on the cross actually erased my sin. I believe that when he said it was finished, he meant it. And, and, and people in the OT were saved then, just like us. They looked forward to the cross. We looked backwards at it, same direction. But they were saved through their faith, just like we are. So most of us, we want to subscribe to a faith that, that, that is dependent a little bit on God, but then a little bit on us. If this promise were made to us, we'd be saying, okay, God, thanks. And we, we head right to the doctor, right to the doctor, even as 40-somethings, and say, what kind of pills does she need? What kind of pills do I need? God spoke it to me, but I need to have one foot on the harbor in addition to the one I'm putting on the boat, trusting in Jesus. So we dabble in both worlds. God said, I'll give you a boy, yet I'm going to look. I'm going to Google at-home remedies, how to have a kid when you're 90, which for the record, I tried. It produced no results. We want this mutual kind of faith where we spread out our investment risk, like, like a mutual fund, which is a really big fund where lots of people have pulled their money. And so you invest in the fund in different kinds of companies, not just one company. 
So your risks are spread out. If one company fails, the risk is mitigated because you still got money with all the other companies. So we're like that guy who's wanting to have uh, uh, eggs in every basket, one of which is God's. And I just want to remind you this morning that the moment you accept Jesus Christ, you become a chosen son. You become a chosen daughter. He loves you. You can believe in him. You can believe in his promises. You've been, the Bible says, appointed to walk in victory over sin. Your needs will be supplied, the Bible says. You will reign forever with Christ. Nothing will overcome you. I'm just kind of doing a word wash here. No weapon formed against you will prosper. All those who rise against you will fall. Nothing can separate you from his Love, goodness, and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. In all these earthly trials, he's working in you an eternal weight of glory. All of these promises are ours, just like Abraham's promises were his. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you really believe them? Is this how you walk through life? Or do you got a lot of eggs in the doubt basket? A lot of eggs in the elbow grease basket. I want to encourage you to lean into God this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just heard someone share with me this morning that, that uh, a relative of theirs was diagnosed as, as a 40-something with breast cancer. Lord, I think of our district secretary treasurer whose wife, a 50-something, just got diagnosed with breast cancer. Boom. Doubles mastectomy. Boom. Treatment. Lord, we never know what's going to hit us. I pray, Lord, that we would lean into you and your promises with faith. Lord, I pray that we would not be spiritually invested into mutual funds but rather a solo, single stock. You, everything we've got, in Jesus' name, amen.